When looking for the king of podcasts, you're at the wrong channel. Well, excuse me! Looking for good ideas for life? You're far from good hands. Hey, bud, what's your problem? If you think the listener is always right, you're far from the right place. Out of order! Even in the future, nothing works! Hosted by a Northeasterner by birth, but a rebel by choice. Are you threatening me? If you want a host that floats between love and madness, and we know the night is always gonna be here anyway. Thinking of you's working up my appetite, looking forward to a little afternoon delight. Then play on and listen to Crazy Train Radio. All right, guys, uh, listen to the blues riff and B. Watch me for the changes and try and keep up, okay? Warning, creators of this game do understand the subject matter may be offensive to some, but they do honor the families and people that have been affected by these real-life tragedies that these individuals have caused. Wanna play a game? Oh yeah! Lover of true crime? Yes, yes, yes. Well, we got an interesting game for you to check out. Wow. With the mashup of influences such as horror movies, collecting cards, and RPGs. What? Led to giving birth to an incredible creation of this game. Killers, the card game. You are all my children now. This game is a collectible trading card game featuring some of the most infamous killers with tidbits of trivia on the back of each card to help you learn some insight to each criminal. Who the hell are you? Let's not forget, during the game, cops will be chasing you and these criminals. I'm a cop, you idiot! However, check out their website listed through all social media today, which can be found under Killers, the card game. Am I on the internet? I want to play a game. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and you're listening to Crazy Train Radio. your least favorite host in the podcast world, Croc, Jonathan Steele. Boy, do we have a good one for you today. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. Boy, has the press been going wild about this book. And 
I got nothing but love for it, but it's the last folk hero, the life and myth of Bo Jackson. It was written by a New York Times best-selling author of 10 books. The book came out in October by HarperCollins, and right now got Mr. Jeff Perlman on. How are you doing, sir? I'm well, thank you. So, first and foremost, from the feedback you've gotten, whether it be media members, fans, whatever the case is, what has the feedback been for the book? Uh, I think really positive. I'm sold really, really well. Made the New York Times list. Um, people seem to like it. I don't know. It's overall very good. Well, are you a guy that is a... And I say this with TV and movies, but I don't know how stats with books, a live and die by the numbers, whether it be the ratings, the sales, the tickets sold, whatever the case is. But in your case, are you a live or die by the number of books sold compared to reviews? Uh, interesting question. I am definitely more... I don't, I don't, there aren't that many book reviewers anymore. So it's not really a thing anymore in the same way. So I can't say I sit here and wait for anxiously for book reviews. I think I'm a, um, do I feel good about the book guy? Like, do I feel positive about it? Did I enjoy the experience? You want it to sell well, obviously that matters because you need more book deals in the future to sustain this profession. And you kind of like sports, you're never as good as your last book. Or you never, excuse me, you're always judged on your last book. So, um, yeah, I don't know. But I don't I don't sit there and I don't sit there and live and die with reviews or even sales figures. You know, I, I wanted to do well. It's great. Making the list made me really happy. But if I didn't make it, I would have survived. Exactly. And that's good to hear. And I kind of ask this when I talk to musicians and such. But because a lot of them are singer songwriters and such, but especially with this book, because there's so much material to go through and went through that you did. But when putting a book together, especially something like this, is there a certain point that you were able to go, okay, I got a complete project time to move on to send it a publisher and you know, go through that final stages of a book. I really only get that way. I never feel like uh, fully complete. I always feel like there's more I could get. Um, but there's a deadline. So usually, yeah. all right, here's my deadline. I have this deadline. I have to hit it. And I just, when it's time to stop reporting, I stop reporting. When it's time to stop writing, I basically stop writing. Um, so, but I always, I mean, I could work on this book. I probably could have spent another five years. It would have been horrible, but I probably could have spent another five years obsessing over Bo Jackson. Um yeah, I just it, it's a reality of books is there's a deadline you have to hand in at some point, so you might as well make it that point and, and make your publisher happy. Exactly. And obviously you and me are of a generation that knew Bo Jackson on the field, on the diamond, all that fun stuff. But mm -hmm. there are I remember hearing in other interviews and such you mentioning about the next generation whether it be your kids and others that might not know who Bo Jackson was. 
And that was the inspiration of telling the story. So when going and trying to separate fact versus myth and all that fun stuff, where does one begin in telling Bo's story? Because he's a guy now that is, tries to stay out of the limelight for the most part at this point of his life. So where does one begin trying to separate everything to tell his story that he did in the book? I mean, for me, from a journalistic standpoint, it's just making call after call after call after call. Uh, first, you do the research and you find all these stories. <clears throat> and you just start calling people and asking about them. And people will add stories and add more stories. And, oh, you should have seen this and you should have seen that. And that was amazing. And this is amazing. But it really, I, to me, like it'd be very hard to write a book without interviewing people or without interviewing a lot of people. Because I just think that's where you get the best material. So I'm very, very into doing the phone work and when possible doing the in-person work. But um, I don't know how you do it without it. And the other thing for me is I'm huge on eBay. eBay has become my best friend when it comes to research. So when I start researching a book, I am all over eBay, finding every media guide, every magazine article, every book, anything that's been written um, about Bo or has anything about Bo, I'm just all about it. And you just dig into that, you circle names, circle other names, et cetera, et cetera, and track them down. And it just becomes a dogged chase. Exactly. And for this book, there was over 750 interviews in two years in the making of this book. And obviously the most, one of the most interesting things I was aware of is obviously Bo didn't want to have involvement with this book because you did talk to him at least. However, you did go and do some research with a book he did back in, what was it, 1990, that him uh -huh. and Dick Schaap wrote? Correct. So um, what was it like called, going through all that? Well, basically, I got lucky because uh, Dick Schaap, um, after he after he finished Bo Knows Bo, and obviously before his death, he donated all his notes, media, um, interview transcripts, audio tapes to the Auburn Library. And I didn't know about that entering this project, but I um, I was granted access to it. And I, I think I was probably, I'm guessing, the first person to see it since it was donated because it basically was untouched. And um, it was this treasure trove of material, stuff that had never been um, unearthed before, stuff that he, Bo talked about when he was 28 years old that he probably didn't wouldn't want to talk about at 60 and stuff that was really just... It was just magnificent. It was the best find I've ever had as a journalist. It was it was also like going back in time and seeing Dick Schaap's work and, you know, being able to appreciate his interviewing technique and his approach. The whole thing was just a godsend, journalistically. And for those who live under a wall and don't know who Dick Schaap is, legendary journalist mm -hmm. and guy was just amazing and a true treasure to sports reporting. Now, obviously, like I mentioned, you did talk to Bo prior when starting this whole process. Did he see the finished product that you know of? I don't know. Um, I know he's heard about it. I mean, he's tweeted about it, not that positively. Not He hasn't said anything bad specifically about the book. He's more made the point, I didn't write this book, so wait for me to write a book. So I don't actually know. A lot of times when – this is a long history of my career and many other journalists' careers where people – they get 
ruffled feather. You know, he, I looked it up. He wrote it. For those, uh, if someone releases an unauthorized biography, it means they're using someone else to profit for themselves. Don't be fooled into thinking this is a true representation. If you want to hear the real story, wait for me to release it. And I always, um, I understand if you're Bo Jackson that you feel that way or you feel like here's some guy making money off me or blah, 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 blah. Um, and I would say two things. Number one, he would laugh if he saw how much money I made annually off of this book compared to the amount of work put into it. And number two, like autobiographies have a slant too. And the slant is they're exactly what you want to say about your life. And I, you know, in Bo's autobiography, Bo knows Bo. And I love Bo Jackson. I love that book. But he wrote about going, starting his Auburn baseball career, going 0 for 21 with 21 strikeouts. And I always thought, wow, that's amazing that he struck out. Struck out 21 straight times to start his Auburn career. And when I was pitching this book, I actually told people that. Publishers, I'd be like, you're not going to believe it. But he went 0 for 21. Why well, do the research in his first game at Auburn? He went 2 for 5 against uh, Illinois State. You know, like it just wasn't true. It wasn't him lying, I'm sure, but just memory is flawed, you know, and sometimes having a researcher come in and actual do the, actually do the digging and do the doggedness and look into things is a lot more uh, honest, I think, than if you tell your own story. You tell your own story, you're going to say exactly what you want to say. You're going to leave out the inconvenient parts. You're going to leave out the stuff you don't feel good about. And that's totally fine. There's definitely a great place for autobiography in America, but I think biographies matter. I do. Yeah, exactly. And I definitely think you tried to separate the myth versus the legend and all that stuff. And in Bo's defense, and I don't know him, never met him, any of that stuff. But I can say, and I do notice that you at least reached out and did have a phone conversation with him about potentially being involved. So, and that was his choosing not to be involved. So, true. Well, I mean, what are you going to do? Yeah, obviously you reach out to the person, you, you try to talk to them and you you want their insight and you want their involvement, but you're just not always going to get it, you know? Exactly. But there's a couple other things I want to ask you about why I have you, but what was the biggest surprise you learned during your research in this book? Oh, man. I mean, there's just the thing I do want to say, this is a... Uh, it's not a cop-out, but like if you interview as many people as I interviewed and you do the research, you're going to be surprised by a million different things. You know, like I don't think there's a biggest surprise. It's just a, and the stream of surprises. Um, you know, a, a lazy but good one was, you know, he goes to the Raiders in 1987 and, you know, the Raiders have him run a 40 and he runs uh, on grass in pads in basically tennis shoes, a 419. And they don't believe him, so he runs again, and he runs a four one seven. I mean, he was just so preposterously athletic. He's he does his uh, you know, he he wins back to back state triathlon championships at Auburn the second time. I'm um, excuse me at McAdory High the second time. He doesn't take off his sweatpants. He just does it in his sweats all the events, and he did his last year on a sprained ankle. And the day after winning the state decathlon on a sprained ankle, he pits his only game of the year for the baseball team. And he, um, he struck out 13 in a state playoff game, like the endless feats of athleticism that actually check out just sort of routinely blow my mind. Absolutely. And he's a, I don't think there's been an athlete since in terms of being so skilled in anything he did. Yeah. There's, you can look at guys who played individual sports or 
focused on one sport, whether it be Mickey Mantle, Mike Trout, Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, LeBron, you go through the list. But Bo was certainly unique. Not only did he excel at one sport, but he excelled at multiple sports. Yeah. So people could say Dion, and obviously there's that famous clip of Bo just running him over and stuff in college. But, you know, there's Bo was a unique figure. But the book's available on Amazon and all your usual suspects. Mm-hmm. But a couple of things I also wanted to ask was, first and foremost, your book, like I said, you're an author of 10 different books as we speak. Showtime, your book was then used to be a part of an HBO series and stuff like that. What's that like for you as a writer? Yeah, you were focusing on having a book, but then a network such as HBO or anybody says, hey, we like to use your book for a series and all that stuff. Uh, you know, otherworldly. Literally yesterday I was in um, I was in L.A. because I, I get to play a reporter on season, season two, episode six, and I filmed my scene yesterday. And you're at this... It's really weird. Like you're on this scene, this set in Hollywood, and you're playing a reporter in a show based on a book you wrote. And it's just trippy. It's all really trippy. It's like gravy. You know, it's like I've always said, I always make the mistake of saying it's like a dream come true. And then I always correct myself because I never really had this dream. It wasn't something I thought of. And what was really cool about it is it made the pandemic. It gave me, and during all the whole Trump nonsense, it gave me something to look forward to. Like it actually gave me something positive when I really needed it. And when things were getting really dark, I had the show. And I was like, oh, my God, they're making a show out of my book. This is ridiculous. They're making a TV show on HBO. And it's not about, like, book sales. There's not a huge bump in book sales. There's a bump, but not a huge bump. It's not about, certainly not about fame or celebrity. It's just about seeing something really cool happen and knowing your book played a role in it. I don't know. It's really been really neat for me. Really satisfying. Well, obviously, you mentioned Trump and the cluster that's been, and I'm not getting political here, but you were a writer at Sports Illustrated when things weren't as crazy as, say, Trump and different people. Not I'm not just singling him out, mm-hmm. saying crazy stuff, but you were involved with a story called At Full Blast with John Rocker. Mm-hmm. And when he said what he said and whatnot, so... What was the reaction for you going back in that time period? To, it wasn't the norm that crazy stuff was being said. Uh, yeah, it's funny because if John Rocker had said all that stuff nowadays, he would sound just like Trump. Like it wouldn't be, you know what I mean? Or Marjorie Taylor. It'd Ringham, be more than normal, you know. Which is sad, actually. Um, back then it blew up everywhere. It became a viral story before stories went viral on Rocker wound up being suspended by Major League Baseball, demoted, fined. His career kind of hit the crapper. And, um, yeah, I mean, for my career personally, it was a crazy experience and a really – I don't consider it a positive time period in my life. I didn't really like being the center of it all, but it was an educational experience. And I do think it's – in a way, it's an indictment of society that, like, he would – nowadays, he would just be, be fit in. He'd be, like, invited to – he honest to God would be invited to speak at the Republican National Con- Convention. And they'd be like, here's a baseball hero, John Rocker. And he's being the woke mob is making him apologize for blah, blah, blah. And it's like he was a disgusting, vile human being who happened to open up to a reporter. But 
yeah it's it seems like another five lifetimes ago truly exactly but like it like we said it would feel more like the norm if comments like that were made today not saying it's right but you know it's it's amazing that and we're taping this on video and i want to ask because we're on zoom and stuff you have a friend who joined you there who's your friend that this is little poppy poppy the dog and she's a very lovely dog but she's a pain in the ass and (laughs) all she does when i'm on interviews is eat paper in my office and bark at me Okay. Well, she's seeming friendly right now. So she's very friendly. I love her. Give, giving you glasses. kisses and stuff. She ate my glasses the other day, so that she's not in good. She's not in good standing in this house right now. But <laughs> I'm a sucker for her anyway. <laughs> uh, the other major topic that I wanted to bring up because you wrote about him as well is Brett Favre, mm-hmm. and obviously on the field and everything else, everything stands for itself guy was a hero i grew up enjoying him and everything else like that but obviously in the past few months we've heard some more not good things about the man accusations and stuff with the state and you know that story's been out there and being told and evolving what's your thoughts on the whole breaths far things as we sit here on november 17th uh i think he's disgusting i think he's grotesque i think the idea of allegedly taking money uh that's earmarked for welfare recipients in your state mississippi which is the poorest state in america and suffers the Mm -hmm. largest percentage of poverty in america and having that money diverted to southern mississippi your alma mater to build a volleyball court because your daughter plays volleyball there is beyond repair and and i also think um and i include myself in this we should have been done with Favre the minute he sent pictures of his privates to a sideline reporter with the Jets, that should have been it for him. Like that was, he ruined that woman. Jen Sturger was her name. He ruined that woman. He ruined her life. He ruined her career. But he came back with the Vikings light next year. And we were like, ah, the old gunslinger's back. And we fell for that narrative. And it disturbs me to no end in hindsight that we weren't harder on him. Everyone took it as a joke. It was almost a joke that he was sending pictures to a, to a, a woman reporter. And ah, it's not a big deal. And it was a really big deal. I just, I can't stand the guy, honestly. I have nothing but but contempt for Brett Favre. And, you know, it's ironic, I guess the word is I'm looking for, because if, the, again, if this happened a few years later, say 2019, 2020, during the Me Too movement, yeah, he would have been completely canceled, I think. Yeah, but we suck. Like, we actually suck. We as men in this business, I'm not saying you, but like, I don't know how we turned a blind eye to that. I really don't. I don't know how he allowed him to come back. I don't know how the NFL allowed him to come back. He sent pictures of his junk to a sideline reporter. And we just went, okay, you know, like, oh, that's terrible for about four days. And then who are the Jets playing next week? Like, it's so inexcusably bad. It's so inexcusably wrong. Uh, I don't know what I wrote about it at the time, but I, I whatever I wrote, it wasn't enough. Like it's just ridiculous. So I am. Um, it's it's it really bothers me. Like really bothers me, and he bothers me. And the idea that we we just keep letting him off the hook because all shucks Mississippi and oh the gunslinger and oh he's a Hall of Famer. I mean, the governor of um, of Mississippi, Governor Bryant, the former governor, basically fell in love with Brett Favre because Brett Favre could throw a spiral a hundred yards and he was the gunslinger and he won a Super Bowl and he's from Mississippi. It's so insane. 
like the governor was like 60 years old. What are you, are you still 12? The whole thing just, it, I, I can't understand it. I'm a sports writer, but I, I'm so horrified by the level of adulation we throw at these people because they can do something physical in a colorful uniform. It's insane. Exactly. And like I said, the mentality I would, would have thought would have changed if it were different, but unfortunately it's not. But I do got to give you credit as we wrap here. Uh, I appreciate the chutzpah, as we would say in Yiddish, that you had back in the day at the University of Delaware, because I'm from South Jersey and familiar with Delaware quite well in trying to get to work for the college newspaper as a freshman. Because <laughs> Thank you. Obviously, most schools wouldn't look at you as a writer at first freshman year mm-hmm. when you come to try to work for the paper. So where did that come from? Is that the, being a New Yorker or where did that husband come from? You know, probably my parents. My, uh, my mom was a probation officer. She didn't take any crap. My dad ran his own business, but he always was like, you know, he published his own book and he was always being creative about how to promote it and how to sort of sell it. He would always like, he wasn't, he wasn't pushy, but he was uh, aggressive in his approach to sort of getting things done. And I just, I don't know, you know, this isn't going to make sense, but I remember years ago, I've never told this story in any public medium. My, um, my grandma was in the hospital. My grandma's long since passed. And my dad, and it was in Washington, D.C. And my dad and I were walking around um, Washington, taking a walk. And it was political season. And there was a sign for a local candidate running for like Congress. And my dad and I thought, wouldn't it be funny, like together, wouldn't it be funny if we took the sign for a congressional candidate in Washington and just put it up in our neighborhood in New York and saw if anyone noticed. So we took the sign, we took it from Washington, we brought it home and we put it up on our corner. And we we never know if no one noticed or not. We have no idea. But we always thought that was really funny. You know, like, and my dad always was like an outside of the box thinker and like a kind of weird, quirky thinker. And maybe I inherited some of that, you know, like I, I still laugh at the idea of like a political sign for a candidate in Washington, D.C. sitting in my neighborhood in Mayo Pack, New York. So I don't know. Well, speaking of weird and quirky things uh, for publicity, and I got to give you credit. I know Rich Eisen and others have done so, but for the last folk hero, and I'm going to show pictures on the video version of this, you had a signed copy of the book that you left at the airport at JetBlue in that terminal. So what inspired you to have that almost like a seek and find kind of thing. I don't have any great answer. Just life is short and you might as well have a little fun and it's kind of quirky and funky. And I just put it on social media and say, Hey, I just left a signed copy of my book at terminal, you know, outside the sort of the whatever kiosk in terminal two, first person to find it can keep it. I've done it at baseball stadiums before. And I took my Sunday angels games. I'll just tweet out, Hey, I left a book here under a seat. I don't know. It's just kind of fun. Maybe it's ego. I don't know. I just, Again, like I'm not like it's not going to make me any money or anything. I'm basically giving away a book. I just why not be engaging with people? You know, why, what's the harm of being nice to people and having fun? Well, the other part of that with the note you left about the book and everything, you said, "Hey, I'll send you a bow shirt and all that fun stuff if you reach out to me." Did anybody reach out to you? Did they found the book? Yeah, and such? yeah, 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 yeah. Definitely, I ended up sending people shirts. Yeah, 
Nice. <laughs> 100%. So the book is The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson. Jeff Perlman, thank you so much for the time. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on and asking interesting questions. I appreciate it. Hey there, Friday fans. We know how much you enjoy the movies. Enjoy grabbing your Friday merchandise and interacting with the Friday family, whether it be at conventions or during our particular watch-alongs. Well, when you're looking to get yourself masks, why not check out our friends over at Camp Blood Customs out of New York State and order your specific custom mask from any of the films. All orders are made specifically. Your needs and wants are. Make sure you find Camp Blood Customs on Facebook, Instagram, and all over social media and order yours today. This is Vince Papale from the movie Invincible, and you're listening to Crazy Train Radio. It's where you really want to get the real story, the Invincible story.